0: Good afternoon, uh, welcome to Serious Security Seminar. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, uh, Meng Xu. Um, Meng is a fifth-year PhD student uh, at the Georgia Tech, advised by uh, Professor Taiso King. Uh, his research interests are in software security, inversion version programming, and bug finding. He has published many papers in top security conferences. And in fact, uh, even as a PhD student, he has uh, served on the program committee of uh, ACM CCS conference. Um, so today, Mon will talk about uh, uh, bug-finding in OS kernel. Yeah. So yeah, thank you Ninghui for the introduction and uh, thank you for inviting me here for the talk. And also thank you for the waiting. It's been, uh, the Mac has, has some issues, uh, but it's hopefully it's fixed. So today I'll be talking about uh, some PhD uh, work I have done like during my, my years in Georgia Tech. So a little bit about myself. So I'm starting my fifth-year PhD at Georgia Tech. My advisor is Tsu Kim, and I have collaborations with Wen-Ki Li, uh, Michael Bakars, and uh, Marcus Pinello from MSR through the internships. So as uh, some background on my research experience. So the first year, I was pretty much enjoying it as a freshman. So I did a survey on the Android Securities, which is published in ASAM CSUR. And also I did some uh, work on browser privacy uh, issues In uh, see whether the brow- browser implemented this incognito and guess mode correctly. I was publishing CCS15, so if you're interested, feel free to talk to me afterwards. So in the second year and third year, I was mainly into the theme of this software diversity. So the main arguments like this, the whole computer monoculture, makes attacks very easy because as long as you know what the target uh, victim is working, uh, running on, you can profile it, run all the kind of experiments on your own, and then you shoot the packet, exploit it, and done. You can exploit millions of machines. So what can we do to solve these issues? And we resort to the software diversity part. And for that, we have two works lining up. Uh, one is like, how do we fuse? these compile time diversification schemes and run them concurrently at the same time. And the other work is uh, how do we use different operating system or platform diversity to detect PDF malwares. So if we go a little bit more details on this, so this um, fusing the compile time diversification things is showing on the left. Uh, It's uh, the the Bonshin work published in ATC 17. So basically it's a framework that you can run multiple Program variants at the same time. So, and the whole the key to this architecture is the recording system, which all uh, the synchronization system, which one variant will actually trap into the kernel, dump the information into in this picture in a, a ring buffer, and uh, then the the other variants or we call the followers, which is instrumented with different standardizers will will come in and then compare with the what already have there in the in the kernel in the ring buffer. And by, if we see any divergence in the, in, the, in the execution, we call this as a, a alarm. And we raise the alarm and saying that, hey, something is going wrong. Maybe one of your variant is exploited or is under attack. Please do some investigation. So on the, the, on, in terms of this OS diversity or platform diversity, it's always published in USN security 17. So it was summarized by the picture on the right. Basically, we send the same PDF file into two platforms, one running on Windows, the other running on macOS. And then by comparing the internal ex- external traces, we know that whether this PDF is a good one or a bad one because the assumption is that if a good PDF, it should behave exactly the same on the two platforms. Otherwise, if it's trying to exploit something, it very likely it will fail in one of the platforms. And in our cases, most, most attacks fail in macOS because they're designed with Windows in mind. So this is another way of another aspect of trying to detect malicious PDF documents. So this, my fourth year is more towards uh, the bug finding uh, applications, and also I do some internships in Facebook and uh, Microsoft Research, just to know how the industry is conducting the researchers. So if you're interested in my experience there, you can also talk to me offline. So today I'll be talking about the bug finding work, which is about Precise and scalable detection of double fetch bugs in the OS kernels, and this is work done with my colleague Chunxiong Qian, Professor Kangjie Lu, uh, Michael Bakas, and uh, my advisor Tesu Kim. So, what is a double fetch bug, and what is a double fetch in the first place? So, it, this all happens because we have this address space separation in the modern OS design. So, basically, for any kind of application, you have the user space or the program space and the kernel address space. And they are totally separated. For user, for the user space, uh, for the user program, there is no way you can access the kernel space directly, but the kernel can access the user space. Now, if you want to say you want to tell the kernel to do something, then you're going to tell the, give kernel a pointer which point to your own address space. In this case, you try to invoke this kernel function and your user space pointer points to some struct called dead beef. And uh, then, so the kernel cannot, it's not going to directly dereference the user space memory because it might not exist, it might cause fault. And if that happens, the kernel crashes, and we don't want that. So, what the kernel will do is that it will try to first copy your address, your memory, into the kernel space memory. For in this case, you're going to first copy this dead beef, this four bytes, into your kernel memory. And do whatever things on that, and basically it's transferring this user space function pointer, so user space pointer, into a kernel space pointer. And there's some uh, guidelines in terms of how you can do this uh, user space pointer copying. So the first thing that you should shouldn't do the direct dereference. You shouldn't do this star k pointer equals to star u pointer, because this directly dereferencing the user space pointer might cause. A kernel panic if the pointer is not there or is pointing to the wrong address. So what you should do is you should use this transfer functions. Like in this case, it's called copy from user. So basically, you tell the kernel that, "Hey, I want to copy the u pointer into k pointer for four bytes," and this is the correct way to do. It. And every kernel, every kernel uh, to user space accesses has to be fall into this pattern. And there are three. Basically, there are three user space copying functions. One is called copy from user. The other called get user, and the third one called memdupe user. So all of them for these are the only three mechanisms you can try to access user space memory. And this gives you a clear like indication that hey, this kernel is trying to access something in the in the user space. Now there's another implication that why uh, the the this dead beef the structure resides in the user space. Uh, user uh, address space. It's like there could be multiple threads running at the same time. So in case that one thread is trapped into the syscall and try to invoke this k function, there could be another thread, like trying to access this this uh, structure at the same time. Which means that if you you're trying to if you copy something into the kernel, and sometimes later the other thread try to override the same address. The content could be different, and there could be some inconsistencies. And this is the root cause of the double fetch bug, which we'll show you later. So now we understand like, why we do a single fetch, because now the things reside in the user space, and we want to bring that into the kernel space. Now, why do we do double fetches? It's very similar. Uh, it's very simple. It's like, now the reason we do single fetch is like we know that the, the, the pointer is going to be pointing to a four byte structure or four byte uh, data. But in some cases, we don't know how many how large is the, me- is the total message. Therefore we, what the kernel and the, the user space developer agree on is that the, the pointer is still pointing to something, and this time we're going to say that the first four byte of the structure is going to contain the actual size of the whole structure. So which means that we don't care uh, so we don't have to pass an extra argument to the, to the kernel seeing that this is a uh, 30 byte. A struct we are going just just pass the pointer and you first fetch the first 4, four byte dereference it get the whole size the total size of the struct and then copy again and this is exactly what happens in the in the inner kernel so for example you have a user space pointer pointing to it and you first fetch you get the first 4 byte only and you dereference it into 30 and later you're going to do some sanity check because you don't want this Thing to be ridiculously large or ridiculously small. So you have to do some sanity check. Make sure that it's within a given range. And In this case, definitely 30 is, uh, seems to be a good number. So you'll pass the sanity check and you'll go to the next. Okay. You pass the sanity check, you know that the whole structure is going, going to be 30 bytes. and Then you know that next time you do the fetch, you're going to fetch the whole 30 bytes message into the kernel. Now this is why we call it a double fetch. Now if you think carefully, what could go wrong in this whole process? Now it's like <clears throat> once you, okay. now, it's like still you first copy the four bytes into the kernel space, and re- recall that we have a like we have a user space other thread trying to access the same memory. Now when you after you do the first fetch. And while you are doing the sanity checks, there could be another user space thread trying to override the first four bytes of the memory. And in this case, we could like simply override the first four bytes into a ridiculously large number, 64K in this case. And because you don't, you don't know this, you're still going to copy the same uh, from the same address and this 30 bytes. And then you next time you get this whole structure, but you don't know that the first four bytes of the whole structure has been changed. And later, if you do some processing on this structure and then you try, you you do some processing on this UATTR in this case, you do processing, you receive a result and then you now want to copy the result back into the user space. Now you are going to ask how many bytes I should copy back and then you look for the first four bytes of the struct, and then you find that okay, I need to copy 40K, uh, 64K uh, kilobytes of address uh, uh, of the kernel space into user space. And then you have a kernel information leak because that's you know, there's no way you you have this sixty four kilobytes of buffer and definitely you're going to leak other processes information and pro- probably some keys some um, data some anything you want so this is this is how this double fetch bug can lead to like serious exploits now why there this double-fetch pattern is so prevalent in kernel, like what you just see is like they're trying to do some size checking. So we want to ensure that the size uh, is within a certain range. It's not too big or too small. And there could be other cases. For example, dependency lookup, uh, protocol signature checking, or some information guessing because like the, the information given by the user space is not complete. So I'll show you several examples. So this is an example. This is a case of dependency lookup. So what you're trying to do is like, you're trying to uh, first get the message header, like similar to the size thing, you get the first few bytes. And then from the header, you try to see whether there is a, uh, you try to get this IOC number, which is a device number, think about it as a device number. And then you try to look up whether there is a device in the kernel to handle this request. And if there is a device, uh, lock is lock, to handle the request, release the lock, and give up the device. So this is what intended by the developer. But what actually you can do is like, because you can change after the first fetch, what you can essentially do is like, you can ask the kernel to hold the log for the number one device and do this download using number two's resources, and then release the log for number one. And if you do this kind of attack, you can do like um, mutual, Deadlock kernel deadlocking or you can do some use some risk condition because now this do fw download function is not protected with any lock. You can do all kind of data races with it, and how you want to exploit, is your like it's up to your imagination actually. And this is a very another simple attack like the kernel try to enforce that you shouldn't send out messages, which is not TLS version one point two. And uh, so, what they do is like, they fetch the header first and quickly check if this if version is TLS, TLS 1.2. If it's a yes, then go ahead. Otherwise, reject. Now, the intention is very good, so we don't need to copy the whole message to, to know the header. But what actually can happen is like, you can skip the, you can give it, give it uh, a TLS 1.2 version just to spoof the uh, protocol check. And after you do the second fetch, you can change it to whatever TLS version you want. And this kind of break down the assumption that you cannot send out messages not in TLS version 1.2. And there's some prior works that try to detect this kind of bugs. So the the spawn project is what codenamed this bug as a double-fetch bug. So it tried to run on Windows kernels and try to use some dynamic analysis approaches. Basically, it forks up a virtual machine and then try to uh, uh try to fast try to send the, the sys calls and then you try to monitor whether there are two consecutive memory accesses to the same memory and if this yes then possibly this is a double fetch bug and then they report this to the user and up to the user to manually check whether this is actually a bug or not and also there's a work called uh, decaf which also falls into the lines of dynamic analysis. But instead of working on Windows, they work on Linux. And instead of using a virtual machine, they try to use this cache side channel. Because if you're consecutively accessing the same memory addresses, the cache is warm. And uh, it takes very small amount of time to to, to get it. So they they exploit this side channel to get the timing information. And it's uh, much more clean than this virtual machine inspection scheme. And also the there's also uh, another work which falls into the static analysis one which is uh, po face work on user security last year so it tried to do some lexical code matchings so basically it kind of defined a pattern uh in a, in a code saying that if I see the code written in this way uh, say the two variables are the same name and they try they are involved in this copy from user and get user functions and then we consider this could be a double fetch block and then we go to manual inspection to do that so the good thing about the static scheme, which means you don't need to actually execute code, is like they have very high code coverage. You can possibly cover all the kernel code, even without the, the actual hardware to, to support it. Uh, but the thing is like uh, it's, it's very has a lot of false positive, false negatives, because you, you can't pre- possibly precisely model all the inst- executions. Also the dynamic scheme is on the contrary, so you, you you have very precise information about when this memory is accessed but you cannot possibly run those drivers without hardware support. So. so what we try to do here is not much different from the pong phase work that falls into the static analysis. But the major difference is like, instead of using lexical co- code pattern matching, we try to define this symbolically or in a more s- systematic manner, which in the later talk you will see. And because we have this much more precise definition, we can have both co- both high code coverage and also precise detection. So basically, how do we define a double-fetch bug? So we define the double-fetch bug by defining what is a fetch. So a fetch is very simple. It's just a pair of two variables, symbolic variables, address and size. So address is the starting address of the fetch and the size is how many bytes is copied in the kernel. So they are symbolic in a way that it could be uh, concrete numbers or they could be like a symbolic number, th- which depends on user input. We just don't know. So then we define an overlap fetch. It's like two fetches are trying to access the same part of memory or at least some partial of them are overlap, which can be further visualized in this way. So if you have a get user and then copy from user, which uh, falls into this pattern. And then we think that this is clearly an overlap fetch because this ATTR part is actually fetched twice into the kernel space. And also another common pattern you see is like you first fetch the header of the message, which is uh, usually in the form of size of struct header. And then you you, you dereference the size and you do some calculation and you derive what the size of the whole message. And then next time you copy from user the whole message. So these are the two most common patterns we see when you do this overlap fetching kernel. And now we have overlap fetch, but every, not every overlap fetch is actually a bug, because, like, it's, for example, if I after a second fetch, actually do some check to ensure that the overlap regions are the same. then this is not a bug. So how do we formally define that whether this is a double fetch or a double fetch bug, we, refor- we resort to this like control dependence and data dependence definition? So, we call, so if we call this a bug, if either control-dependence de- or data de- dependence can be established and we cannot prove that those overlap region doesn't change during the two processes. So a control-dependence is like some variable must satisfy certain constraints before the second, ha- second fetch can happen. So in this TLS case, we have to say that in order for the second fetch to happen, this header dot version has to be TLS 1.2, otherwise it's a return E not supported. So therefore we kind of implicitly imply the constraint that in order for the second fetch to happen, this shared variable has to be this. But after the second fetch, we didn't further check that this full dot version has to be TLS 1.2 version. And therefore we conclude that this is a double fetch bug. And also in terms of dependency, data dependency is like that. So control dependency is like on you have we, we the, the the overlap region affect the control flow. And then the data dependencies is like the overlap region. You somehow use the data inside it to derive something. And in this example, you try to use the IOS control number to derive the actual device controller or device adapter to, 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 to acquire the log and to do this download functions which uh, kind of form a data dependency. But after you do the second fetch, you didn't even further check whether this number are the same. and then we, therefore we conclude that this is a double fetch bug. And also, uh, there could be cases like you have both control and data dependencies, and there will, will definitely be a bug as well. So to quick recap, we, uh, in order to call something a double fetch bug, we have to say that, they copy from the same uh, user space memory that covers somehow overlap regions, and they have to establish the control or data dependence. And furthermore, we cannot prove that after you do the second fetch and until the end of somehow the function, you cannot, we cannot say that these two the overlapped memories are the same. And then, if all the set, all the conditions are satisfied, we call this a double fetch bug. And this is way better than um, trying to define the code pattern that this variable is used here and then used there. And it's, in this way, it's more precise and so more convincing to, to, convince like both us and the developer that, Hey, this is a bug. So how do we find those things according to the definition? So basically we try to find as many as double fetched pairs and construct those code passes that go through both pairs. And then we're going to symbolically check each of, the pa- each of the path to see whether this path makes a bug or not. So basically how do we collect the pairs? So we try to statically enumerate all of them that could possibly h- occur and the ideal solution is like okay we are going to f- identify all the fetches in the kernel and we are going to construct a super big complete interprocedural CFGs and we are go- then with that we can do pairwise reachability test. But this, the second and third point is almost impossible to be done just because uh, the, the kernel is uh, way more complex than we can think. Therefore, we do try to do this in a bottom-up way, so I'll show you with an example. So how do we do this bottom-up fetch pair collection? So we start from one fetch and within its function we try to look upward. So we search through all the instructions that could possibly reach this fetch. And in the first case, we get very lucky. We find another fetch and good. We get this fetch pair. Uh, if in another case, we see that a function is called and we know that inside this function, there's a fetch somewhere. And what we do is like we're going to inline this function and then make this whole enclosing function at, at, like containing two fetches again. Uh, in the worst case that we couldn't find anything. So we just conclude that this is not a double fetch. I mean, this enclosing function doesn't give you a double fetch. And therefore we don't check these things. So now we have the fetch pairs and uh, we have the code paths. Now we are, the next step is like, how do we symbolically check each of the code paths and to determine whether this is actually a bug or not. So be, so basically the goal of this symbolic checking is to symbolically execute all the instructions over there and to see whether this the two fetches satisfy the definition we just said. Like there's an overlap and you have to either have control or data dependence. And we cannot prove that this overlap region are the same after the second fetch. So let me show you with an example of how this is done. So this is actually the, the case of this uh, perf event, which is a, it's a, it's a little bit simplified, but it shows you how this is actually done in an in a actual code. So this is the function that has a double fetch we just see. And f- so how do we do symbolic checking? Now, what at the beginning of this function, we immediately know something. For example, this uattr is a pointer that points to some user space memory. And this attr is a kernel space pointer which points to some kernel space memory. So we're just going to annotate those things with uh, dollar sign zero, dollar sign one, and add zero, add one, just to represent that they are these are pointing to these are pointers and pointing to some memories, and one in user space, one in kernel space. So then we go down to the to the statements. So when you see the first fetch, we're going to see that the first fetch is starting f- is a fetch pair a and s, and the address is the uattr plus four and size is 4 because get size get user will get the same size as the first variable so this, the first variable is a u32 integer so it's 4 bytes so we immediately know that this uh, first fetch what how to represent this first fetch and later on we do some sanity checks uh, which is basically assert some constraints on this dollar sign number 2 which represent this size variable and after the second fetch, we're going to do the, uh, sorry, after the sanity checks, we're going to do the second fetch. And in this time we get a constraint that the second fetch starts from zero, uh, which is represents UATTR and the size is, is a symbolic expression. It's dollar sign two and dollar sign two is, is what you get in your first fetch. And when we, after we do this, now, it's, when we reach the end of the function, now it's time to check whether this is a bug or not. So we first try to see whether this is an overlapped fetch, and it turns out, yes, it is an overlapped fetch. <coughs> so because we, ca- we could have a, have a size, say like seven or eight, that covers, uh, that is as long as it's more than the, the, the four, and also satisfy this page size and the perf attribute size version zero constraints we can we can we can possibly have a overlap fetch and the next thing is like we are going to check whether this makes it a double fetch bug or not so basically we are going to see whether this uh, data dependence or control dependence and uh, in this case we have both dependencies. and then we, are, we think that this could be a bug and we are going to check whether at the end of the function we can ensure that this user uh, this th- the same thing that copies in the two fetches are the same Which uh, in this case is the size, and also this attribute, uh, point size. So, and we try to we send this constraint to the solver, and the solver says that there is no constraint that has to force them to be the same, and which is true. And in this case, we conclude that this is a potential double fetch bug, and we we report this to the developer, and the developer acknowledged and patched. So, and in the paper, there's a much more, dif- uh, much more like, advanced example showing you two more features we can do. Like we can do some loop unrolling and also we can do some pointer resolving, like alias analysis thing, uh, just, just within the context of what we are going to analyze. So if you're interested, I'll refer you to the, po- to the paper, which is in Auckland uh, this year. So general in findings, we find 24 bugs in total like 23 of them are in the Linux kernel and one in the FreeBSD kernel. So nine bugs has been patched with the with exactly the patch we provided, and four of them are acknowledged. But like the developer, think there's going to be some major restructuring. So they are wait for further uh, like integration into the kernel, and there are nine bugs are still reviewing and two bugs are interesting. So they are the mark has won't fix, specifically by the developer. <laughs> And uh, yeah, the one case is like um, the the developer think that this is a risk condition, but uh, it's not going to be causing any serious issues. It might mess up with uh, with the internal state, but there's no visible thing you can do, so they are not going to fix it. Okay, fine. The other bug is is actually a false positive from our system. So if you recall that our system requires a enclosing function, and the assumption is like. At the end of this function, we cannot assure, I mean, uh, uh, once you get out of this function, there is no way we can assure that. These overlap regions are the same. But in that particular case, uh, we can, they can assure, and they actually do assure this outside that function. The reason is like they return two things out. One, the, the actual size return with the return, and the other side return with a pointer. So they actually do pass out both information and they do the check outside that function. So this is another case we cannot, uh, this is false positive, and this is a case we cannot handle. So but this enclosing function design actually simplifies uh, this symbolic checking and actually enabled everything. So we're going to pay with this false positive. So next thing is how do we mitigate this kind of bugs? So, the basic idea is to reassure that the control and data dependence between the two fetches are the same. Like, to just reassure this. So, in other words, we try to do this syscall uh, automatic, uh, aut- yeah, automis- automaticity. Yeah. So, basically, um, there are four patterns we can apply to patch this kind of bugs. The first one is like, we are going to override the second fetch which means that however you, you fetch in the second time, we are going to override the same memory with the, what you get in the first time. Now the second, quest- second um, way to patch it is like instead of uh, we override, we are going to detect whether you have changed something or not. And if we, if we detect the change, we're going to early abort. Like in this case, uh, return an uh, invalid, uh, go to e-invalid. And the third time the third way is to refactor this overlap fetches into incremental ones. For example, I don't uh, in, in first fetch I copy the first 4 bytes, but in the in the next fetch I, I skip the first 4 bytes and I copy from start from the rest. And then internally I merge them into a very big structure. So this is the third the third way of refactoring the fetches. And the last the last uh last way is to like refactor into a single fetch. And this is usually very complicated and uh, it requires some uh, knowledge of how this is internally working and uh, how we can further optimize the data structure. And this is not a generic enough way to to patch it. So initially we try to send all the patches in in this way. So because it is simple, but some developers don't like this. They want uh, this. To error abort, or they want to refactor into increment copies, or they want this kind of thing. So, how how really you patch it is totally up to the developer, like the kernel maintainers. So usually we don't have the way, but all of them should be able to mitigate this kind of attack. And uh, we try to see whether there are like automatic ways so so to do this, but seems like. Like Given this, the experience and uh, the, the complexity of the kernel, there seems to be not very good way to automate this. Uh, recently, the decaf work provide a promising solution. So, it tried to use this Intel hardware called TSX. So, it's basically lock all the syscalls into transactions. And if you do that, they automatically imply that when th- the memory you protected under the syscall, they are not going to they, they cannot change otherwise this transaction will abort like database transactions you cannot change, change things so if uh, this is definitely one way of doing this automatically but one it applies to intel only and second even with this tsx thing how do you handle this abort routine is another difficulty so and i don't think the kernel developer are going to implement but this seems to be a promising approach as well so some limitations of our system. So we couldn't handle this. Everything had to be compiled into LVM. So we couldn't handle those things. Uh, cannot that cannot be compilable. So we have to. Uh, in terms of this constructing this execution paths, we have to limit the number into in in uh, in, in some sense. So luckily, like ninety-nine percent of the path contraction can be done within like ten or fifteen passes. So we set the limit to be two, uh, 4K. So which in the hope that um, we could accommodate as many paths as possible. I think only like 200, 300 functions like goes exceed this, this limit. The rest totally is totally fine. And also in terms of loop unrolling, we only unroll a loop once. So, and uh, a better way could be like abstractly interpret the loop. So we can represent a way of unrolling un- un- the loop in any times, but for for for, for this work we just limit to once. And also we in the in terms of symbolic checking we ignore most of the inline assemblies. Uh, although there are not many of them, some of them do appear and uh, cause some trouble. Although they don't cause false positives, but c- it could cause like false negatives. And we also have very imprecise pointer to object mapping. So remember that in the entry of the function, we are going to assume that certain, these pointers point to different memory object, objects. And we hope that they point to like those pointers have types. So we know that how much uh, memory this, this, actually, this object actually occupies. But these are very in, imprecise assumptions and could be invalid. And also like, like in the case of the one uh, false positive, we could have wrong assumption on like what constitute this enclosing function. So in conclusion, we think that detecting double fetch bugs without uh, a precise or formal definition has like possibly led to many false alerts or tremendous manual effort. So in terms of like more systematically d- detecting this, we try to come up with this um, memory uh, this mathematical model or mathematical definition of what constitute a double fetch bug and then we try to find a developer system using this model and by doing this we believe we achieve both high accuracy and also high scalability and we think that this double fetch bug doesn't applies to like only kernels it could apply to many other things as long as you have a like function or privilege boundaries for example user space kernel space okay that's a kernel and then you for hypervisors you have the same boundary access boundary for browsers, for trusted execution environment. They could have uh, double-fetch bugs in those applications as well and uh, we hope that our scheme can also apply to them. I also think that like apart from this memory safety bugs, like buffer flow user-free, like the risk condition bugs are now like pretty much more interesting. They're on the rise. We hope that we could find more of this kind of bugs in a modeled and systematic way. So that's conclude my research on this and I'll briefly show what I'm going to do next. So basically I'm, I'm more into this um, bug finding thing. So very likely I'll try to make this um, uh, detection more generic. So to try, try to find bugs and more bugs. So basically what you just see is like, if you think this way, what you just see is like a partial repli- uh, symbolic representation which means that we're only representing a slice of the program uh, into a symbolic way. Uh, in this case, we're only representing this simplified function into a symbolic manner. Now, and By doing that, we still can find bugs. And This actually means that if you do this kind of symbolic representation, finding bugs is, becomes as easy as writing the mathematical condition that this bug happens and send them to the solver. So this is this this kind of new way of trying to find the bugs in a more like systematic and fancy ways. So what if we can do this whole program symbolic representation? So what if um, we not only model a function but model a large chunk of a program? So what can you do? Can you find more interesting bugs or like more or simply more bugs? So and there are tons of issues or roadblockers along along the line of research. For example, one key thing is like how do you model this heap memory, and um, how do you uh, handle those recursive data structures? For example, linked list, how are you going to represent them, and are you going to actually traverse the linked list for symbolic execution? There could be like millions of like thousands of nodes. How do you do that? And uh, how do you uh, do this path explosion? Avoid those and uh, or like represent them in a, in a more scalable way. So these are some, there are some, the PL community has come up with a lot of interesting techniques. For example, they try to assume this type safety in the, in the heap memory. So basically each object is like in a type safe way, it's totally typed. And also they come up with this segment offset and plain memory model, which um, use three uh, indexes to represent a memory instead of one symbolic index. So they, they could be used to like for this whole program representation and also in com- in terms of this recursive data structures there's a suppression logic and by abduction from this PLDI. Uh, like uh, from the pr community which we could use to represent those uh, recursive data structures and we can use some abstract interpretation to avoid the path explosion or at least try to like confine those in a, sa- in, a in a way or at least give give the trade off like hey if i my path is going to be explored, i have a way of like constrain it or abstract it, or at least I know how. what are the compromise I made. So, and uh, along this line of research, uh, we have been working on uh, trying to represent the Linux kernel drivers. So the reason we choose them, like first thing, there are many of them. <laughs> like there's more than 4,000 in the kernel. And uh, are reall- most of them are rarely tested because they don't have the hardware to test it. And each driver and although although it's like the kernel is a huge thing, each driver is pretty much self-contained. So it's like small application, which I mean, scaling the thing to the whole kernel might not be possible, but if you get the driver models and then only simulate the the single driver, that could be doable. And also this is definitely challenging now for the symbol executor. So that's why we choose them. And so we, the plan is like we are going to symbolically execute this initialization function of the driver. So once you symbolically do that, it will give you a memory map. It will give you two things. So one thing is like the point to graph. So basically, it gives you a thing like hey, this pointer is pointing to potentially this number of memories with this set of constraints. And then it give you the call graph, like with all the function pointers resolved. And this is the benefit of having this init function. So once you have that. We could have like two. W- the next thing is to find bugs, and then finding bugs is become a search problem. So, given this memory uh, snapshot and given all the possible function calls s- or function traces, so what are, uh, how do you uh, how do you combine them, and to find a bug? So this is uh, the search space problem, and what we are trying to do is we try to do this multi-dimensional symbolic checking. So the very naive way is like we have a snapshot of the memory model and then we send them to one uh, function, one set of function calls and see whether there's uh, any issues along, uh, in, in this. So in the first case, we could find like, hey, the driver's abort procedure call might have a memory safety issue just by like symbolically traversing all the possible function calls. Uh, the other, uh, on the other hand, we could find like, hey, this driver's closed procedure doesn't have any issue. So this is like per procedure check. So what we could possibly do is we could possibly start to organize the things because if you are familiar with the, the drivers, each driver doesn't operate in a single snapshot, in a single like one shot thing. It, it operates in a, in a sequential manner. So it could be possible like we could first open the driver, then do something and then abort and then close. And if we, ha- if we do this, there could be a bug. Otherwise, there couldn't be. So can we find this kind of thing that depends on how you invoke the driver? Can we find this kind of bugs? So this is another thing we are looking at, which is called synqu- sequential checks. So the the last piece of this uh, multi-dimensional symbolic checking is like we could do concurrent uh, execution on concurrent checks. So the bug, like say there's a data race, and it will only happens if you. Give the, given this snapshot if you run these two functions concurrently and see if you want, one process is calling this abort, the other process is calling the closed call. So there could be a risk condition in, in, inside this uh, call sequence, and then whether we can find those bugs by doing this concurrent check. Now, now, what if the search space is too huge for symbol execution? Because we're talking about solving constraints here. Now, we have fuzzing. So we, if we couldn't solve them with all the, the, the state-of-the-art uh, constraint solver, or simply there are too many, we're going to rely on fuzzing to systematically explore the search space. So basically, uh, it's a, the it's a same picture. Instead of like, trying to solve everything, we're going to randomly generate the inputs and see if any of them cause abnormal behaviors like crash or in file systems in uh, inconsistent state in the, on the disk. And similarly, we can do this per, per procedure or in a sequential way or in a concurrent way. So like we couldn't solve this with symbolic execution. There's fuzzing to support this. And also, I've, since I, I gave some uh, in information on this diversity thing like software diversity, I believe that it has like much more to offer than what we just described just now. So if we think about the, the diversity uh, procedure, it's like hey, if I'm going to run some say PHP applications, there could be possible many possible ways to put the diversity, diversity in. So I could do at the process level. So say I could instrument this PHP interpreter with uh, different sanitizers or different diversi- diversification schemes, for example, like layout randomizations or stack paddings. So this is one way, and this is down called process level. And there is another level, which is called implementation level. Say there are, there are tons of PHP interpreters, like the Zend is the official one, but there's HHVM from Facebook, and there's JPHP written like in Java. So they are completely independent and developed by different group of people. So what if we send them the same PHP imp- script and see their results, whether there are different results coming up and if there are different results coming up, does it mean that any of this interpreter is vulnerable? So this is another angle we could look at. And the last part is the platform, like the OS you runs on. Like the example, we show you the PDF malware detection. So it actually leveraged like the exploit couldn't uh, possibly exploit both Windows and Mac OS. Now, same thing, we could have uh, a PHP uh, exploit that couldn't exploit both Linux, uh, like all of the Linux, Windows and Mac OS. So these are the three layers of diversity. And if you think like along this line, the first and the the process layer and the OS layer has been done by the two work. And this, the one in the middle, there's something we can do. And also, um, not only like we can run with uh, the user space, space applications, so we could run with like drone systems, which has this real-time constraints. And what, what can we do in on top of these things? For example, the drone system has a lot of drivers. And the driver code can also potentially apply all these kind of diversification techniques. So can we do something over there? And the last thing is like can we combine this um like synchronization and mismatch with fuzzing? So right now, fuzzing only gives you like signals if the thing crashes and uh, you get a core dump. But what if there's a data leak? Possibly, you, you would let the leak happen because the, the program doesn't crash. Now, with this kind of diversity and synchronized execution and combined with fuzzing, we could possibly detect those uninitialized reads or data read on, or data races even. So uh, I'm also like interested in red teaming against this verified software. So the reason I, I, I get interested is like, so if you recall this uh, symbolic checking thing, it's more like symbolically proving that, hey, I don't have this kind of problem. Now, this verified software is exactly along this line of research. So the, the developers are putting up the specifications, saying that we, the software has to adhere to this and then they are going to generate machine check proofs to ensure that their implementation is actually on par with the specification so what now what can we do um, as a security researcher in, in in line of this verify software so are they going to be like widely adopted so are there any security problems or are they are they going to be like missing specifications or even wrong specifications or are they actually uh, free of bugs in terms of those unverified parts, like those libraries and like the interfaces, are they are they going to be good? So we 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 like to explore this for the SEL4 kernel and uh, then do a lot of more fun stuff on top of it. So yeah, with that, I conclude the talk and thank you very much for your time.